Thank you for tuning in to a sermon from Redemption Hill Church. I'm so glad that you've joined us. It's our prayer that this will lift your heart and encourage you, set your eyes more fully on Jesus as we open God's word together. You can join us anytime in person or online in our live stream. You can find that at redemptionhilldc.org. If you're not in D.C., we encourage you to get involved in a local church where you live for the sake of encouragement and accountability in a local body, but we're also glad to have you join us and, and walk through this study with us. If you'd like to support the ministries of Redemption Hill, you can do so at our website, again, redemptionhilldc.org. It's good to be with you this Sunday. It is a little bit dreary and rainy and cool and sleepy outside, and so I'm glad that you've made it out and braved the drizzling rain to join us this morning. Um, again, if you're, especially if you're new, I'm glad that you're with us and, and hope that you can have a moment where God meets you in our time together. Um, as we just saw in the video, we have the uh, bookmark size commitment cards available that we uh, talked about last week. Um, I hope you grabbed one. If you didn't, they, they're available in the entryway or by the connect table. Um, because we, uh, but you can pick one up today. And this is, I really want to emphasize this. We had a great time at the Q&A for those who, who came out last week um, after the evening service. And one of the things that came out is just, it's hard to have clarity on these kinds of things. Um, and I want to make it clear and make sure that you hear, this is primarily a discipleship tool. We're trying to give you opportunities to really consider yourself, your heart, what you have margin for. And so that 100% engagement really is the top priority. And then also for us to be intentional as a church as we look ahead. So um, looking forward to the next couple of weeks as we head toward the 25th. Um, I do have a couple of things that I want to mention, announcement-wise, and as ways to pray today. First of all, um, we got a text at about 8.45 a.m. that Devin and Alicia Watson are on their way to the hospital to have their baby. So, uh, pray we can pray for Elisha and the and, and the baby that everything goes smoothly and for her sake quickly, um, and that the baby is healthy. Also, this past week, Shane and Stephanie Hand um, they have been if, in the hospital. They're members of our church. Stephanie's been in the in John Hopkins Hospital for the last couple of weeks with twins. Um, trying to prolong as long as they can. Um, they made it to around 26 weeks, but this past week, they um, both they had baby girls who were born, um, Elizabeth and Evelyn, and they are very small, <laughs> but, um, but seem to be doing well. They're both progressing on even being able to breathe well and breathe better on their own. They're being able to reduce some of the things they've had to do to be able to make sure that they, the, the two little girls make it. But we need to, we can celebrate that Shane and Stephanie have welcomed their two daughters um, and also keep praying because there are going to be some upcoming brain scans to look at how the brain is developing and make sure there's not too much bleeding on the brain. And, um, and so we can continue to pray for these two sweet little girls who have been welcomed into the RHC family as well. And so I'm going to pray for both of these families now. Father, we thank you for the gift of new life. We thank you for the common grace of modern medicine that takes what we forget is really a, throughout human history, has been a difficult and even at times dangerous reality of, of bringing children into this world. And so we pray for Devin and Elisha today that, that there would be a healthy baby and healthy Elisha and that, um, that we would get to celebrate who this baby is next week um, and that they would be able to come up with a name together because they still hadn't last time I talked. Um, we pray for Shane and Stephanie that you would be present with them as they continue to care for their little girls. We thank you for the ways you're providing 
before them, um, for the for opportunities of of even housing that they have now up by Johns Hopkins, and um, we pray for for Evie and, Liz, and Lizzie, the, Evelyn and Elizabeth, that you that you would give breath in their lungs and give them strength and health and continue to grow these baby girls. Give the doctors in the NICU wisdom and how to come alongside them. We pray that they would be able to take breast milk soon and be able to receive the nourishment that that gives. And um, that we pray that that we would be able to celebrate their homecoming in time. So we, we lift these to you t- today and trust that in Christ's name we can approach you, Father, and that you hear our prayers and that you care and you are active. We pray today now as we open your word, too, that you would give us a heart, open hearts and open ears to be able to ha- receive what you have for us. And so we lift this time to you in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we are in a series in the book of Ecclesiastes, and so if you have a Bible, you can open it up with me to Ecclesiastes 5, or if you have one of those journaling Bibles, we have more of those available in the entryway as well if you want to grab an Ecclesiastes journaling Bible, um, and, and it will also be on the screen for you. Um, I, I didn't ask, but I, I just have to do a little poll. How many of you are cheering for, the, I mean, we know that the Schroats are cheering for the Chiefs, so how many of you are cheering for the Chiefs today? Wow. Wow. Uh, for the 49ers? How many of you did not put your hand up? <laughs> All right. Uh, some of you should have been going to the 5 p.m. with us then. <laughs> I try to have assured we will end before the game, but, but we do still worship Jesus on Super Bowl Sunday. Um, yeah, my loyalties are made clear. I didn't realize that the video I recorded this week, I was also in a Chicago Bears shirt. And so this is, uh, in case you didn't know who my favorite team was. Um, but I'm looking forward to enjoying that game today. I do think it'll be a good matchup, uh, but that doesn't have much to do with what we're going to talk about this morning. So as we come to this text, today we are, as we're walking through Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes has been helpful for us because Ecclesiastes shows us the extent of what we can accomplish, what we can learn, what we can experience, and what we pursue in our lives under the sun. And so it's giving us the practical wisdom in life that is Solomonic. So it's, it's, it, it, it's a character like King Solomon, if it's not him, himself, um, showing that they, with all of the resources and all of the things that they could pursue, everything under the sun, if God does not exist, comes up empty in the end. Life is a vapor. It's a mist. You can try to grasp at it, but it's, there's nothing solid there. And so Ecclesiastes, remember, is given to us as goads, the, these prods to poke at us and make us uncomfortable and push us into places that we don't want to go. And so today, that gets applied to the topic of religion. How do we approach God? How do we approach faith? And even as in this room today, there are some of you that grew up in church, that have grown up in religious settings. And there are others of you who did not who maybe you're a Christian now, but this whole church thing is pretty new, or maybe you're not a Christian, and you're here today, and you've joined us, and I'm so glad that you're here, and I hope that you'll take time. This is a good place to be able to come in and explore and ask good and hard questions. But some of you know what to expect when you come into a church. Even if it's your first Sunday here, you might walk in, and you go, okay, this is somewhat familiar. This is an environment you're familiar with. For others of you, church is pretty intimidating. It'd be pretty scary. I've had neighbors tell me, I couldn't go in the doors of a church. As soon as I walked in, I'd burst into flames. And I've always thought, 
I would come. I've never seen that happen. And so let's let's give it a whirl. <laughs> um, um, but it can be intimidating. It can be confusing. And in our church, we do try to explain things as we go through each week. Like, this is why we're standing. This is a call to worship. This is why we serve the Lord's Supper, why we ask people to give. It's an act of worship. And, and so we try to bring those things out, knowing that this is a place that it can, it can be intimidating and strange. There's not a lot of environments in our lives that we all stand in unison and sing songs together. Even when you go to a concert, it's usually more passively observed. It's not as participatory. And so to be in a place like this with these rituals and, and things that we do and sacraments and, and a, a teaching time, like it's, it's, a, it's a unique environment. And so today we're going to look at the reality of empty religiosity and what, and what our tr- true approach to God ought to be. It's the, the call is to guard our steps. And so chapter 5, this is what we read. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near, to listen, is better than to offer sacrifice of, the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business, and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It's better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity." But God is the one you must fear. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, don't be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for the land in every way, a, kingdom, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income, so that this also is a vanity." When goods increase, they increase who eat them, and what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, when he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. This is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, and he has nothing in his hand. And he, as he came from his, again from, from his mother's womb, he shall go again naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger." Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God, for he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with the joy in his heart." This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So as we begin today, again, each of these chapters we're covering in Ecclesiastes, we're going to pull out threads and themes. 
um, so that we see a full picture by the end of this, what this preacher, Kohelet, is, is what he's called in this, in this book, we, so that we get a picture of what he's teaching. And so today with that thread we're going to pull, I mean, we could look at power, we could look at wealth, and we, those have a part to play, but we're going to see, really focus primarily on that call at the very first verse, guard your steps when you go into the house of God. And we'll see that, that power and wealth and the corruption of power and the corruption of wealth have implications for what, how we approach God as well. And so the first call to us today is to approach God with reverence. There's five calls to us today in the text. First, approach God with reverence. Anytime we have a sense that we stand in the presence of the Almighty God, the response of our hearts will be fear. Not necessarily like like Jason or Freddy Krueger afraid, like freaked out, but, but a reverence, an awe, a realization of who we are and who God is in his majesty. If it isn't fearful to stand in front of God, then we aren't understanding the majesty and transcendence of God. If you look through Scripture when, consistently as God is revealed to people throughout the Bible, the response, first and foremost, is to fall on their faces in fear. Even Peter, in Jesus' presence, when Jesus said, you know, you've been out fishing all night, why don't you try the other side of the boat? And Peter's like, whatever. And they pull in a massive haul of fish, and the nets are breaking apart. Peter, the first thing he did was he fell on his face and said, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. And so when we come into God's presence and actually encounter his presence and realize we are in God's presence, that is, it's inevitable that our response will be to realize our unworthiness in light of his holiness. Now, At the time of Ecclesiastes, remember, this is written at the time when the temple existed in Israel, and that is where worship happened. And so that made it an easier thing to be able to understand the reverence and awe that was cultivated through the temple as God designed it. That the temple had different courts that you could that allowed different access, and so there was the court of the Gentiles that any anyone from any birth line could come into. Inside of that was the court of women, where Israelite women could come to worship God. But then it was distinguished by men and women. And so then there was the court of Israel that only the men were allowed to go into. As you got to the altar, only the priests were allowed to go into the holy place and around the altar in the first room of the temple. And then there was a veil. And behind the veil was where the Ark of the Covenant sat, the Holy of Holies. And that is where one time a year the high priest would go in and, and offer the sacrifice on behalf of the people for their atonement, still celebrated today as Yom Kippur. And so this is the, the, that kind of ritualistic worship would enforce in, this reverence and awe and fear, knowing that, that if you come before God in an unworthy way, you could die. But it's not so today. The reverence, but it, it, today it's, it's more relaxed. We have a tendency to be a little bit more... Like, approach Jesus as kind of the buddy Christ. That's an old pull from an old movie. <laughs> um, but, like, it's, we want a personal relationship, which is true, but we have simplified things and made things so practical and so individual that an idea of reverence and awe for who God is seems pretty distant. We need to realize, though, that the reverence the Scripture calls for doesn't actually have to do with outward appearance. And you see that here in Ecclesiastes, too, that, that Kohalath is calling for something within us, that it's reverence that we approach God with, but it hasn't, it doesn't, God doesn't care about our outward appearance. 
And we need to realize that too, that there are times when we think that that's what is what shows our reverence and awe when God is looking for our hearts. And so he's saying, be careful. When you come in, draw close to God. When you come into that place, come in with reverence. He says, don't, it's, it's, go in, and the second thing is, approach God to listen. This is another thing that I, I don't know that we're very good at, that, that when we approach God, we often are approaching God with the things that we want to say to God, with the things that we want to appeal to God for, but how often do we approach God to hear from God? Now, Eric mentioned, Pastor Eric mentioned that he's leading a silent retreat. It's hard to come to God and speak much when you're at a silent retreat. But it's to put you in a posture of listening. As a church, I hope that you're able to see this, that when we come together each week, we come together to listen to God's word. That how do we hear from God himself? You know, there may be times when God comes to you through the words of others or through other means or times when you, when you feel a sense of what God might say or hear some kind of a whisper within. That, and so that thing, kind of thing can happen. But the way we hear from God is that he has spoken to us through his word. Hebrews 1 talks about this, that in the past God has spoken through prophets and through messengers, but now he has spoken definitively through his son, that Jesus is the incarnate word of God. And so when we come together as a church, it is essential that we are centered on God's word and trusting that God's word is what God has for us. We have a very high view of scripture that because as a church, you have to make a decision. And as individuals, we have to make a decision. And the decision is, am I going to stand over the word of God and be the one who decides what parts of it are relevant and applicable for my life today and for, for the, our world today? Or am I going to stand under God's word because he is the authority and I stand under what he has given us? It's, it's an either or option there. And so we want to be careful that when we approach God, we approach to listen, to hear his word. And when we talk about worship, like if you leave today and you, and you say, um, you know, oh man, Dev's going to be out for the next month because they're having a baby. And so what's going to happen with like worship at Redemption Hill? That's often like code language that we use for music. And music is an important part of worship. Music stirs things in our souls that are different than other forms of worship. But worship is more than just music. Worship is a wholehearted approach in reverence to God to hear from him and to give him our praise. And so when we evaluate churches, we think about this, that we think about, okay, what are the, what are the things that I want in a church? We go church shopping. Some of you might be church shopping right now, and I'm not going to criticize that. I hope you can find a place that you can invest yourself and your life for however long you're in D.C. for God's glory and the good of people in this city. But those are the things we should be thinking about. Often when we go church shopping, I don't get to do a lot of church shopping as a pastor, <laughs> but um, over my sabbatical a couple, of summer, or a couple of summers ago, I got to go with my kids, and we were able to go and visit other churches, and we, we tried intentionally to spread the kind of traditions and cultural formats that we experienced, and, and so Anglican churches, and more of the megachurch feel, and we made sure to go to churches that were represented by greater percentages of other ethnicities than Redemption Hill is, and, and so in that, though, trying to experience the fullness of the diversity of the body of Christ and the fullness of Christ's body, um, but even there, it's still easy to come away and go like, okay... Uh, it, what's our checklist, and let's you know, go down and give our ratings. 
Music, 6.5. Preaching, ah, two. <laughs> like, and so it, it's, but when we approach things that way, there's just such a fine line between approaching the churches we're involved with in light of like consumerism, of what am I going to enjoy and fit easiest into, versus where might God be calling me, where I know I, my soul can be fed and where I can engage with Christ's mission most fully. And that is, I mean, there is, your heart needs to resonate with what happens in a gathered body for you to be fully engaged that way. But church is not primarily a means of self-fulfillment. And we have been conditioned to approach everything in our lives as a means to self-fulfillment. Watch the commercials that come on tonight during the Super Bowl. I know for some of you that is the only reason you are going to watch. And when you see them... Just pay attention to how many times the theme comes through, you're worth this. You've earned this product that we're trying to sell you. (laughs) You have earned the privilege of giving us your useless cash for this valuable commodity. (laughs) But it's about self-fulfillment. In church too often, what can I get out of it? How do I further my gifting and recognition? Does it make me feel the way I want to feel each weekend? Am am, am I... Or does... or does it may, is it the thing that I want to spend my time doing even? Now, the church doesn't exist for your self-fulfillment. It exists for God's glory. It's not about me, and it's not about you. It's about Jesus. And so we come together to listen and hear God's word in reverence to God, and there are implications for that that we see in the New Testament, that in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, there's instructions given on, you know, when you come together, things should be intentional. It should be in order. It shouldn't be confusing. God is a God of peace, that we want to make sure that our music reflects the content and the tenor of God's word. We want to preach God's word, and that's why at Redemption Hill, we often default to preaching through books of the Bible. And we also need to realize that if you are human, you have a culture. And so there are cultural reflections that come through in our worship as well. But we want to be clear that we should have people's cultural expressions come through in worship, but we need to be careful to not lift our cultural preferences to be the biblical way. This is important, especially important for those of us who are of paler hue, because even in our language, we, we get stuck on this, and it's revealing. Whenever I hear people say, like, well, I really like ethnic food, I'm like, that's interesting. Like, casserole? <laughs> Potato salad with raisins in it? Like, is it, everybody has an ethnicity, a cultural background. And this comes through in the way we think about music and worship, that we all have cultural preferences and individual preferences on what songs should be like, and not just, not just the sound and the groove musically, but even how they're written. And there are times when we will baptize our desires as the ultimate. Think about some of the critiques you hear about worship songs, um, because I want to I expose some songs that show these. Seven critiques that you hear. Sometimes you'll hear, like, the songs here are too simplistic. They lack in depth. They're shallow. They are doctrineless. I mean, there's one that only talks about unity among brothers and mentions God's pa- God in passing at the very end. Can we put the, yeah, there we go. <laughs> or the second one, it is so repetitive. I mean, come on, how many times can you repeat his steadfast love endures forever? Before you start thinking, this song is going to go on forever. 
By the way, I've borrowed all of these from a blog that was done back in somewhere in the early 2000s. Third, some songs, the focus is too much on instruments. The sheer volume leads to it seeming like a performance more than worship. You can't have quiet contemplation when there are crashing cymbals. Realizing right now that for anybody that's podcasting this sermon, they are going to be so confused. <laughs> but Psalm 133, Psalm 136, Psalm 150. Or some songs just have too much emphasis on an intimate relationship with God. We shouldn't sing songs that are written in first person. Using pronouns like me or I or second pronouns, person pronouns like you. Instead, it should always be we and God because otherwise we're fostering a spirit of individualism and generating an atmosphere of religious euphoria rather than actual worship of God. Worship should be about God, not about us. Or what about the ones that use physical language to describe God and our relationship with him? And we have Psalm 113. How long, O Lord... Will you forget me forever? Some songs that only have like four or five lines that people just repeat over and over and over again. It's just these choruses they sing. Like Psalm 117. Or sixth, some songs just have way too many words. You can't possibly sing that. <laughs> like Psalm 119. And then there's a song with a break in the middle asking God not to take the Holy Spirit away as if God would ever do that to a genuine believer so that is theologically inappropriate and wrong. But Psalm 51, create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. The object of our worship is not our own preferences. The object of our worship shouldn't be ourselves. It, it, it should be worshiping and bringing glory to the one true God. And I love at Redemption Hill, one of the things I do love is Devin's intentionality and our different leaders that uh, when we have different vocalists on different Sundays, they bring different things to the table, different desires, different songs that they resonate with, the different keys they sing and different styles of music that they like to sing. And we try to bring that out as a church. That doesn't mean our church is culture-free. Every local church has a personality. And we are all part of the broader body of Christ. But, but again, we need to be careful about, about baptizing our own comfort as the biblical way. John Perkins, in his book, Come Dream With Me, said, Right before Jesus went to the cross, he prayed that all believers, past, present, and future, may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be one in us, and that the world may believe that you sent me. This was Jesus' prayer for all of us, yet more often than not, I fear we haven't lived up to it. Instead, we fight for our own way, for our selfish desires, for our right to be superior. We build churches centered on our own cultural ideas of God rather than seeking to bring us back to him. And then we fight with other churches and religions about who is serving their personal culture God the best. Come dream with me. Dream of a fight for something bigger, something more important and worthwhile. We need to fight for justice and peace and for the walls between us to come crashing down. So church, this is when we talk about dwelling as an enduring and faithful presence where God has put us. It, this is some of what we are talking about. When, what I mean by it, that I want our church to uniquely reflect the place that we live. 
I want our church to reflect the multicultural makeup that it has in shaping a, a unique local church culture. And in D.C., we know that, that we don't have everyone for very long. There are some of you who are more rooted here, but there are some of you that are, we, our church is ever-shifting and ever-moving. Like right now, it feels like we have such different churches that are gathering as Redemption Hill, that some of you are around pre-pandemic, you've been around for a long time, some of you started coming to Redemption Hill during the pandemic online, and so getting connected actually in community has been a little bit hard and odd. Some of you have come over the last year or so, and so it's a totally different group in, in understanding. And what, what we constantly have to do is be reminded of what is most important and what we come together to do, and that is to worship God, to be shaped as a community by the gospel, and to be driven to join him in his good work. But we need you to bring who you are to the table with us. That's when you look at the bookmark commitment card that we have available today on engagement and how you're involved with us as a church, that's what we're pleading for, is don't just come and sit and consume, but bring who you are to the table. We want all of you and everything that God has shaped in you so that you can be a part of this local body. And we have that core value to reach and reflect DC. And I know we will never get there perfectly this side of heaven. But it's also arrogant to think that any church could fully get there. We need different churches in different neighborhoods throughout the city. There is no single approach to church that is going to reach everyone in Washington, D.C. But we do want to reflect the, kinds of, the, the place that God has put us, and we will never let go of that vision of Revelation 7 of every people, tribe, nation, tongue gathered worshiping Christ. That's part of why church planting is so important to us and why we invest so heavily into it is because that allows new gospel outposts to bring light into darkness. So, we approach God um, to listen. We approach God with reverence. Third, we approach God without empty promises. <laughs> Kohelet gets into this here in verse 4. When you, if you make a promise to God, he says, you've got to go and fulfill that. Like, don't, don't skimp on vows you've made to God. God has no pleasure in fools, so pay what you vow. It is, it's better not to promise anything to God than to fail to fulfill it. Let, like, don't, don't let your mouth lead you into sin. Like, be realistic here. Why make God angry at you so that he destroys your life? Now, again, this is wisdom under the sun, and what we're seeing in Koheleth is often how we feel, but this is not the fullness of biblical wisdom. God knows who you are. God knows that you're messed up. He knows that I'm messed up. That is the best part about the gospel. That's uh, Ray Ortland's church Emmanuel had a mantra that they said, said, you know, I, we, I am a complete idiot, and my future is incredibly bright, and anyone can get in on this. That's the message of the gospel. And so don't think more of yourself than you ought to, and God isn't just waiting to zap us for an unfulfilled promise, but... But we are living in a world where everything has been reduced to be a commodity. Everything is explainable. Feelings and emotions are reduced to chemistry, facts or lifted up to be the wholeness of who we are. Facts and figures rule, and so as we approach God, we do the same thing, and we come and say, okay, what can God do for me? Like, if I do this, then God's got to follow through this way. And so we approach God as if we can manipulate God by the promises that we make. Or when we do something wrong, we fall into guilt and we immediately start making promises that we know we can't fulfill. Gosh, I just blew up in anger. Lord, I promise I am never going to do that again. Until tomorrow. (laughs) 
And so why do we do this? Why, well, I think there's some means of manipulation. I think there's some means of easing our own consciences. But this is, and we also get into this where, again, some of you have come up in religious settings where, that, where manipulation has happened to take your emotions and make you make these kinds of commitments and promises that you know you can't fulfill. And it's just sad moralism. So many times I've been at conferences that are like, okay, stand up. If you are committing today that you are going to read your Bible and have a quiet time every day for the next year, never once have I had a year that that happened. Probably shouldn't admit that as your pastor. (laughs) God does not hate you if you have a day that you don't do a formulaic quiet time. Should we engage with God's word? Yes, to listen to him. Should we pray? Yeah, Luther says that for the Christian, breathing should be like, our prayer should be like breathing. So we should constantly be in prayer. Does it have to look a certain way in order to gain God's favor? No, that's moralism. That's not the gospel. Jesus talked about this in Matthew chapter 5. And his Sermon on the Mount is, which, by the way, the Sermon on the Mount for Jesus, Matthew 5 and 6 and 7, is really the kind of anti-Ecclesiastes. But in chapter 5, Jesus says about oaths, he says, hey, you've heard it said of old that you shouldn't swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> you've heard it said, maybe, maybe in Ecclesiastes 5. Um, but I say to you, don't take an oath at all. Don't take an oath by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, it's the city of the great king. And don't take an oath by your head, for you you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Well, Jesus is pretty clear on this, and this is a biblical perspective. Don't make a bunch of empty promises that we all have made and are prone to make. Why would he say that anything else comes from evil? Because we can never actually be fully truthful and honest. We will twist reality to suit our purposes or spin information. And so Jesus is saying, stop playing games with God. Stop pretending, stop performing. If you stop playing games, you might finally see who you really are and who God really is, and then there's hope for you. Because then we might actually come in reverence to listen and stop making it about us. So how do we approach God? If, if most of us are honest, we have no idea how to approach God, and our prayer life reflects it. Like, prayer can feel, if you approach God formulaically, prayer can feel mysterious or useless. You say, like, well, there's other things I need to be accomplishing right now. Even in our work for God, you might say, well, no, I've got to do this and this and this and this. You want to talk about a temptation for somebody whose work is at a church. But all of us fall into this. And so if, if you don't believe there is a God or that God hears you, then prayer is unimportant and strange. Why would you ever do it? If you understand your sin and God's holiness, then you'll fall into a place with nothing else. You'll fall into despair at the mystery of prayer like Oheleth, just saying, like, I don't, don't make any promises. Or if you do, make sure to fulfill them because otherwise God's going to ruin your life. But if you approach, and if you approach religion as a commodity exchange, then prayer is just a manipulative tool to get what you want out of God. But the reason we can default into putting on a show is to hide our insecurities in praying, because we hide that we we will hide our hearts and never bring ourselves fully into God's presence. 
Prayer is incredibly difficult. It is one of the hardest disciplines to try to be consistent in. It's hard not to get distracted. It's hard not to have our minds wander elsewhere. And then it's hard not to feel guilty. As if God, when we call him our heavenly father, is going to be mad at us for being distractible. We might fall asleep. You think God's mad at you for being in his presence, talking to him while you fall asleep? You think I would be mad if I'm sitting and talking with one of my kids on the couch with my arm around them and they fell asleep while we were talking? No. You think I'll be upset if I'm talking to one of my children and, and they get distracted by something else and their mind wanders somewhere else and they start talking about something else? No. And I am a very fallen, very normal man and dad. We're talking about God our Father. All right, fourth, approach God to check your own heart. What is it that you want? This is verse 7. When dreams increase and words grow many, there's vanity. It's emptiness. It's a vapor. But God is the one you must fear. And so this is when he's saying, okay, don't make all these promises, but when your dreams increase, when you're making this about you and what you want, and you're using all kinds of language to talk to God about what you want and what you're trying to get, then, then you, you, your approach to God is not coming to have your heart shaped by God. It's coming to make sure that God gets it right. And so as we approach God, check your own heart. What is it that you want? And this is where the power and wealth come into this. That what is it that you want? Is it power? Is it, being, is it recognition? Is it influence? Is it, is it political victory? I mean, we are, we are headed into what is going to be just another election year. <laughs> uh, and there's so much that could be said. And our politics continue to divide the body of Christ because people have allegiances to the kingdoms of this earth that outweigh the kingdom of heaven. Is that the primary thing you're asking God for? Do you think God's kingdom is dependent on who gets sworn in next January? Or is it money, financial security, things, like, we've got to realize power breeds corruption. That's what he gets to here. Like, if you see oppression of the poor and violation of justice and righteousness, uh, don't be surprised. <laughs> this is somebody that was a king, saying, if you see those things, don't be surprised. But, you know, there's different people and higher officials watched by higher officials. Verse 9 is really, really difficult to translation, translate. The translation is messy. I actually think the NIV gets it right here. It gets it better, saying, the increase from the land is taken by all, and the king himself profits from the fields. So, of course, people want to be in positions of control and power because it benefits you. Kings benefit from the profit of all those below them, and, and it goes higher and higher up the line, and we know that, that the concern is profit, not the people who are working for it, that the further you advance, the more concerned you are for the tasks and systems of power, and the, and the lonelier you will be. And so what is it that you want? Jesus asks that question a shocking amount of times in the Gospels, where he'll look at people and say, what is it that you want? You know, to somebody that's paralyzed, what is it that you want? As if it's not obvious, but Jesus wants to know the desires of their hearts. 
This is the Pharisee and the tax collector, right? That the Pharisee comes in and he goes and he's praying and he uses all these words and is dressed up right and is showing the proper reverence for God in that cultural setting and, and, but then is saying, oh Lord, thank you for not making me like this man. But the tax collector fell on his face, beat his breast and said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Are you approaching God to ensure that he gets things right in light of what your heart desires, or are you approaching God to have the desires of your heart shaped? Fifth, approach God and receive joy. The conclusion of the chapter is the same kind of sentiment in the end of chapter 2 as we come to the end. This is the end of the second section of Ecclesiastes, chapter 6, start section 3. And so this section talking about the sovereignty of or God's, God as creator and his design for the world, that we're just stuck in this place, you can feel Kohelet's frustration with it. That he's, he's saying, all right, I've seen, this is what all it comes down to. It's good to eat and drink and find enjoyment in the, in the work that you do. That God has given you this lot and just be there. Everyone to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and accept his lot and rejoice in this toil, this is the gift of God. You hear this, he's saying, you can have all of those things. You can get everything your heart desires and still not be satisfied and still not find joy. And in fact, whatever you have, whether you're a worker who doesn't know whether your stomach is going to be full, you'll actually sleep better than the guy who's overfed. Like the, the, what, he's, what he's drawing out is it doesn't matter what you have, it's whether God gives you the ability to have joy in whatever circumstances you're in. And we, don't, we get that so wrong because we think that the things we desire are going to bring us joy and we look to them as the ultimate sources of our joy and they will let us down every single time. If you're consumed by your work, then you can never find greater fulfillment, great fulfillment in it because you're, you're placing so much pressure on it. But if you are less consumed, if, you, if work isn't your ultimate goal and the thing you're looking to for your identity and joy, then, then you actually can be fulfilled by it because you're not putting the pressure on it. If you're not consumed by power or influence or politics, then you can actually leverage positions of influence as an opportunity for impact in the good of others rather than serving yourself. Can you imagine that if just Christians or people who claim to be Christians across this country would approach their politics and think, what is the best way that I can love my neighbor with this vote? How our nation be transformed? If you're not consumed by your personal wealth, then you can find greater fulfillment in having the money because you can invest it into things that matter and are eternal, meaning the good of others around you. But only God brings real joy. And so just briefly, this is our hope, is that Jesus gives us access to God. That's, Hebrews chapter 4 talks about this, that, that he has torn the veil in his flesh through his death on the cross so that we can approach God directly and come straight to the throne of God that we don't have to have intermediaries and, and saints and people that we pray to because we approach God directly. At our church, there's an important symbol that you see the Lord's Supper is here for you. I don't stand between you and the supper. You don't need another mediator. Jesus is the mediator to God. I just open up the table and make sure that you know that one beggar has found some bread that we can all eat. And so, so there, we can approach God directly only because of Christ. But he then shows us in chapter 6, 
of, of Matthew, in that same Sermon on the Mount, he talks to his disciples and he pulls out what a right approach to God is. When he says, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. They love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they can be seen by others. But truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. When you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who's in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. He's saying, stop performing. You are underestimating God's holiness if you think that you can put on a show and manipulate him. He goes on, when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases like the Gentiles do, for they think that they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them, for your father knows that what you need before you ask him. He's saying, stop pretending. Stop putting on airs that, you're, that you are something you're not. And he says, instead, when you pray, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. You hear what he's saying? He's saying when you approach God in reverence, to listen, to, to check your own heart and have it shaped, to, to not giving empty promises with a lot of words, but, but the way that we can actually receive joy is to realize that we're not tied to a temple. We can approach God anytime, anywhere. Through Christ, we approach God as our Father. We are adopted as sons and daughters of the King. He could have simply saved us and justified us and sanctified us. And, and to be in his, God's presence is more than any of us ever deserve. But through Jesus, the veil is torn and we have access. And it's not just that we are saved or justified or sanctified, but we are adopted as children, loved by God. Jai Packer says that is the highest privilege of the gospel. And so we need to recognize that God is our Father. And if we recognize who God is, then we'll know where he is. And so we call out to him in heaven. He is sovereign above us all. Jesus reigns and rules from the throne in heaven now. When you go and read Revelation 4 and 5 about that throne room, that is not a future vision. That is Christ's reign now as the Lion of Judah, the Lamb who has been slain. If we recognize the grandeur of who God is, we have to respond in worship and adoration that will come from the depths of our souls. And that's when we cry out, hallowed be your name. God is holy. He is set apart. If we understand who God is and what he has done for us in Christ, then we'll want to see his name glorified and, and we'll turn from our own self-fulfillment to true worship. And that's when we can cry out, your kingdom come, your will be done here. The biggest reason we get selfish and commodity-oriented in our approach to God is because we don't really know the God we're praying to. But if you know God as your Father and have intimately approached Him just that way, you will come to know God's beauty and grandeur in new ways. You won't be able to help but desire to see God's will and desires accomplished. And that's when we say, on, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We want to see God's will be done and His kingdom come in D.C. as it is in heaven. That's the cry of our hearts. That's the reason this church was planted. Give us this day our daily bread is throwing ourselves fully on reliance on God for our provision and protection, not looking to our own power and wealth for that safety, but acknowledging his sovereignty and care. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. God's ultimate provision for us is, is forgiveness. Through Christ, the debt of our rebellion and sin have been canceled. 
And so as the first of the 99 theses, 95 theses for the, that sparked the Reformation said, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he called for the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. And we need to realize that forgiven people forgive people. And when we cry out, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, we're saying that we are pleading with God, not only to forgive us, but make us holy. We're not relying on our justification by faith alone only to turn to work on our own for our sanctification, but we approach God saying, please, you need to shape this in me. And so church, this is my deepest desire for, for you if you're a part of this church and call this church home. I want you to experience God's presence. I want us to be a church that worships God, not out of obligation or to earn something, but out of an overflow for our passionate love for Jesus. I want you to bring your whole heart to the table and your whole self to be a part of God's work and worship here. We don't want religion to be a show, but want to approach God with reverence and awe to hear rather than, than to speak, to draw near to his presence, to not make empty promises, but to come to God through Christ so that we can rest in joy. So today, this morning, you've heard God's word multiple times. We're going to head into a time of response where we respond by singing and draw, where we try to give you a chance to draw near to God, having received his word and he, heard it expounded, now that you can come in reverence and awe to focus on his awesome work through Jesus. We come and share a meal together as a family as we share communion and sing praises collectively to him. And so as I close today and we head toward the table, I'm going to close with the Lord's Prayer. I don't think we have it on the screen, and so there's different versions. Don't worry about if it's, we're going to say debtors and debts, not trespasses, but let's pray the Lord's Prayer as you remember it, those of you who know it. So we come before him saying, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Father, we come to you praying that you would shape our hearts. That's the only hope that we have. It's the hope you've given us in Christ. So we forgive us for times when we lift up ourselves or our preferences or our cultural backgrounds as the ultimate rather than bringing who we are to you as part of the cacophony of praises. Would you shape us as a church to be one that is so wrapped up in the beauty of who you are and what you've done for us that the rest fades away and we're freed to be a part of your work in this place in ways that we can only imagine now. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.